Hey, let's take a Bible and open it together this morning to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to continue in our ongoing study of the life of David, that great man of God. And if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, we'd like to invite you to borrow our copy of the Bible. You'll find it right on the back of the seat in front of you. We're going to be on page 218, page 218 in our copy of the Bible, or 2 Samuel 6 in your copy of the Bible. Now, I'm sure you heard about the horrible tragedy this past week aboard the aircraft carrier Enterprise. Just in case you didn't, let me refresh your memory. What happened was that one evening, a Navy EA-6B radar plane was coming in for a landing, and there was another plane sitting on deck with this two-man crew inside, and the plane that was landing hit the other plane on the deck. Uh, The two pilots that were sitting in the plane on the deck were able to eject safely, but all four of the young men who were in the radar plane were tragically killed. And uh, when I read that story in the paper, it brought to mind an incident that happened to me several years ago. Uh, I had the privilege of going out to the USS Roosevelt while it was operating in the Atlantic and spending two days and one night aboard the carrier. And um, they told me, you can go anywhere you want on the carrier. You're kind of free to wander around. You just can't go see the nuclear reactor, which is too bad because I really wanted to see the nuclear reactor, but they wouldn't let me go there. But... But anyway, I spent a lot of time up in the, in the, in the uh, conning tower with the air boss and with the crew up there, his team. And one night, the night I was on the carrier, they were doing um, carrier qualifications. They had new pilots who had been trained on ground for months and months and months. And now they were coming out for the very first time to try to land this thing on a moving, swaying, in-the-wind aircraft carrier. And so uh, I was watching up there, and they were taking off and landing, taking off and landing. And all of a sudden, this one F-18 came in, and it set, he sat down. He trapped just fine. Seemed like a normal landing to me. Everything seemed fine. When suddenly the air boss went absolutely, totally ballistic. I mean, off the wall, crazy. I mean, just nuts. And, and I couldn't figure out what had happened. It looked like the guy landed the plane fine to me. Well, what had happened was, when he touched down, he failed to power up the aircraft. Meaning that if he'd have missed the wire, if he had failed to trap, he would not have had enough propulsion to get back up again and would have gone across the deck, killing himself and who knows how many other people, destroying who knows how much aircraft equipment. And the air boss was absolutely crazy. And he said, I want that boy off my boat. I want him off my boat now. And he made this kid fly back to Norfolk. He didn't even give him another chance. I, I didn't... I don't know whether the captain realizes that the air boss thought it was his boat, but I thought that was not the right moment, you know, to bring that up. But anyway, (laughs) later on, I mean, I was watching this, and it just seemed a little severe to me. You know, I mean, the guy, okay, so the guy's out here, he's learning. I mean, he's trying to, I mean, you know, when you're learning, you make a mistake. It just seemed a little severe to me. So later on, I asked the officer that was showing me around about it, and he said, sir, he said, let me respond to that. He said, sir, there is only one way to land a plane on an aircraft carrier. It is the Navy way. And, sir, if you don't land a plane on a carrier the Navy way, then you don't get to land a plane on a carrier at all. Is that clear, sir? I said, that's very clear. He said, good, sir. Now, having been on a working carrier, I understand this. I appreciate this. The Navy, in in making people do it their way, is not being uptight. The Navy is not being narrow. The Navy is not being hard to get along with. The Navy is trying to ensure the safety of that plane, the people in that plane, and everybody on that deck and on that ship. 
and it may seem a little rigid that you have to do it the Navy way, but friends, it's for everybody's benefit, and I understand that. The reason I bring this up is because this is the subject that lies at the heart of the passage we have in front of us today. Uh, David learns in this passage a very important lesson, not about doing it the Navy way, but about doing it God's way. And I think there's a tremendous lesson here for you and me as well. So let's look together and see if we don't agree that maybe this has some application to our lives as well as to David's. Right here, 2 Samuel chapter 6, a little bit of background. Remember now, David has ascended to the throne of Israel. He is now King David. He's captured Jerusalem. He's made it his new capital. The end of 2 Samuel 5 tells us that God has given him some major victory over the Philistines. And now, David decides that it's time to undertake a great project for God. And let's look and see what it is. Verse 1. And David brought together uh, out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. And he and his men set out from this little town in Judah to bring up the ark of God to Jerusalem, which is called by God's name, who is enthroned between the angels that are on the top of the ark. Now, if you remember, 1 Samuel chapter 4 tells us that the ark had been taken captive by the Philistines at the battle of Aphek. They, they beat the Israelites under Samuel and they took the ark captive. And they took it to one city after another in their Philistine cities and every Philistine city they took it to got smote with a plague. Finally, they decided, maybe we don't really want this thing after all. And so, they sent it back to Israel. And for the last 70 years, it has been in a little tiny town called Kiryat Jearim, which is about nine miles to the west of Jerusalem. For 70 years, that's when it's been, that's where it's been sitting. And David's passion was to bring the ark from there to his new capital, to Jerusalem, and to build a permanent home for it there, a magnificent temple. This is what David wanted to do. Now, what do we know about the ark? Well, we know the ark was made out of acacia wood. We know that it was four feet long, two and a half feet wide, and two and a half feet deep. We know it was overlaid with pure gold. And we know that the lid, commonly called the mercy seat, was made out of pure gold and had two angels on the top pointing their wings towards one another. It was Israel's most sacred treasure. And inside of the ark were three things. Number one... The, the, the two tablets with the Ten Commandments on them was inside there. You mean the very ones, Lon, that Moses brought down off Mount Sinai? Those two? Yes, they were in there. And the second thing in there was a short staff that Aaron, the brother of Moses, the high priest of Israel, had used in the wilderness. And the third thing that was in there was a bowl full of manna, that supernatural food that God had fed the Israelites with while they were in the wilderness. That's what was inside of the ark. And the ark's normal, normal location was inside a portable structure called the tabernacle. The ark was located in the innermost part of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest was allowed to enter there once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. He would sprinkle blood on the, on the mercy seat, the, the, the cover, the lid of the ark. And in response to that, God had agreed he would forgive the sins of the people of Israel for that year. Now, as I said, David's goal was to bring the ark to Jerusalem and to turn the portable tabernacle into a permanent temple for the Lord. Well, let's see how it went. Verse 3. And so they went and they set the ark of God on a new cart being pulled by two oxen, and they brought it from the house of Abinadab where it had been. And Uzzah and Ahio, the two sons of Abinadab, 
were guiding this new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in the front, leading the oxen. And, and uh, Uzzah was walking next to the ark. And David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all of their might, with songs and harps and lyres and tambourines and cymbals. I mean, everything was going great guns and David was just dancing and having a good old time and everybody was thrilled to death to be heading towards Jerusalem. You say, Lon, the way you say that, you sound like there's about to be a problem. Folks, there's about to be a big problem. Look with me. Verse 6. It says, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Now, do you understand what happened here? They're leading this thing on an ox cart, right? And they're going up the hill country towards Jerusalem. And suddenly one of these oxen trips, stumbles and starts to fall. Well, when he starts to fall, he starts to pull the cart over with him. Well, when he starts to pull the cart over with him, the ark starts to fall off the cart. And Uzzah, one of the two sons of this guy, Abinadab, who was walking next to it, saw this happening, stuck his hands up to catch the ark so it didn't fall on the ground and maybe break or the top pop off and everything spill out all over the ground. I mean, he tried to catch it. Verse 7. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act, and therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. And then David was angry. Because the Lord had done this, verse 9, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. And David said, how will I ever get the ark to Jerusalem if God keeps doing stuff like this? I'll never get it there. Verse 10, and he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him to be in Jerusalem. Instead, he left it right there. Verse 11, and the ark of the Lord stayed there three months. David wasn't willing to mess with it. Now, every time I read this passage, my friends, I get the same response from myself. The first thing I find myself thinking about God taking Uzzah when he caught the ark and striking him dead is, that's not fair. That is not fair. I mean, all this young man was doing was trying to keep the ark from falling on the ground. I mean, he was sincere. He was well-meaning. He was just trying to help and to strike him dead because he tries to keep the ark from falling on the ground and breaking and everything spilling out of it. That just doesn't seem fair to me. I'm sorry. But you know, the problem is, that Uzzah violated a very sacred rule that God had set up for the ark. In the Old Testament, God made it clear that no one was allowed to touch the ark under the penalty of death. You say, but Lon, if the ark is about to fall off a cart and onto the ground, what does God expect people to do? I mean, what does He want you to do? Just stand there and let it fall off the cart? Well, friends, now we're down to the real issue. Because you see, the ark never should have been on that cart. In the first place, in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 37, the Bible tells us that the ark was built with ringlets on the side, gold ringlets on each side of the ark. And that also, Exodus 37 tells us, that there were two poles that were built, wood poles covered with gold, that were designed to fit through these ringlets and hook into them. And then uh, Numbers chapter 4 tells us that only the Levites were allowed then to come and put these poles on their shoulders and lift the ark and carry it, walk with it on their shoulders. That was the way that God had prescribed in the Bible that the ark was to be moved. And friends, God made no provision for somebody to catch the ark when it fell off a cart because... 
God's way of transporting the ark never involved a cart. It shouldn't have been on the cart in the first place. Here's the point. The point is that in his enthusiasm to bring the ark to Jerusalem, David failed to take the time to make sure he was doing it God's way. He he had wonderful motives, David did. I, I mean, he had genuine sincerity. That's wonderful. But no amount of good motives and no amount of genuine sincerity can substitute for doing things the way God tells us to do them. And it was David's failure to take his time and to make sure he was doing the thing God's way. That was what caused this innocent young man to die. That's why David was so mad. It was his own fault. Now, let's finish the story. David left it there for three months and said, I'm not touching that thing. I mean, I'm not stupid. But, but he ended up getting it to Jerusalem, and I want you to see how. Flip over with me to First Chronicles chapter 15. It's page 296, if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 296, First Chronicles chapter 15. And we're going to jump ahead three months, and we're going to watch David get the ark to Jerusalem. But I want you to see the difference. First Chronicles 15... Look with me, if you would, at verse 12. Page 296, uh, verse 12. David summoned all the priests together, and here's what he said. He said to them, verse 12, You are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord to the place I prepared for it. Now look at verse 13. It was because you, David said, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of Him about how to do it in the prescribed way. That's how we got in trouble, David said. So, the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord. Look at verse 15. And the Levites, look at this, they carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. And guess what? When they did it that way, the ark got safely to Jerusalem. David got safely to Jerusalem. Everybody with him got safely to Jerusalem. Why? Because they did it the way God told them to. Now, that's the end of our passage, but it leads us to ask the really important question. And I know you're rusty because I've been gone for a couple weeks. One of my sons told me, he said, Dad, you know, those two speakers you got were so good. You better get back. You're going to lose your job. So, so I'm back, and I know you remember our question, okay? So, ready? One, two, three. Oh, that's wonderful. I feel loved and welcomed home. Thank you. You say, Lon, so what? I mean, we all know that the ark is in a big wood box in a warehouse here in Washington. None of us are ever going to get near it. So, what's the deal here? This has nothing to do with me. Well, I think it does. I think there's a great lesson here for you and me. You know, there's a wonderful uh, book, uh, a best-selling book called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Have you seen this? And there's a subtitle that goes along with it that says, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small stuff. Now, every time I look at this book, and I see it all the time because there's a copy of it that sits in my bathroom at home, so I see this thing all the time. Every time I see this book, I find myself reacting and almost saying out loud, no, that's not right. No, uh, uh, Dr. Carlson, you're wrong. Everything in the world is not small stuff. I'm sorry, that's not right. You see, these poles and these ringlets to God were not small stuff. If you don't believe me, ask Uzzah. 
And he'll tell you these were not small things to God. And there's a lot of other things in the world that are not small things to God. And so, no, I'm sorry. Yes, we shouldn't sweat the small stuff, but no, everything in the world is not small stuff. And there's a huge message here for us as Christians, friends. We're such pragmatic people, we American Christians. I mean, we, we think we see pretty clearly what the Lord wants us to do. We get a pretty good idea what it is God has for us to do. And man, we dash out to get it done. We're going to get it done, you know. Just get that thing done for God. Let's get it done for God. We don't want to expend the energy to go get some poles. And we don't want to take the time to put them in some ringlets. And we don't want to go about the trouble of putting those poles on our shoulder and walking with this thing. I mean, it's a whole lot faster to just put it on a cart and get it there. After all, we say, God can't be all that concerned about trivial little things like poles and ringlets, right? Just get it done. Get it done. That's the American way. Well, wrong. That's wrong. You see, that's what David thought. And God had to teach David a very important lesson. He had to teach him. David, listen. If I care enough about some small stuff like ringlets and poles to write it down. And David, if I care enough about that small stuff to record it in the Bible for the ages, then David, I care enough about it for you to read it and pay attention to it and do it the way I told you. Now, you know, God had to teach that same lesson to Moses. I want you to turn in the New Testament with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7. And if you're using our copy of the Bible, it's page 775. Page 775, Acts chapter 7. And here we have Stephen giving a speech and recounting for us the career of Moses. And he makes an incredible observation that applies to what we're talking about. Listen, Acts chapter 7, look with me at verse 20. Stephen says, at that time Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. And when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was powerful in speech. He was powerful in action. He was like the Peter of the Old Testament. He was a go-to guy. I mean, you wanted something done? You get Moses on it, and by golly, by hook or by crook, Moses is going to get it done. Verse 23, and when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his Israelite brother's defense and he avenged the Israelite by killing the Egyptian. Now look at verse 25. Moses thought that his own people would realize, they would understand that God was going to use him to rescue them. But they didn't understand that. This is a fascinating comment the Bible makes here. At the age of 40... Moses knew in his spirit somehow. Moses sensed in his heart somehow that God had chosen him to, 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 to lead the children of Israel into freedom. And he had correctly sensed the will of God. That God had chosen him to deliver the Israelites out of the hand of Yul Brenner. God had chosen him to do that. And he was right. But, but the problem is, Moses rushed out in, in fleshly arrogance, in fleshly impetuousness, and he said, okay, now, I know what God wants me to do. I'm going to get it done. I'm going to grab the sphinx by the horns, and we're going to get this thing done. And he made a mess, a mess out of things. Ended up running away, as you know the rest of the story, living the next 40 years on the backside of the desert, till God brought him back at age 80 to do exactly what he knew God wanted him to do, but this time to do it God's way. God's way did not include murdering people. 
God did not want Moses to lead his people out by murdering people. That's not how God wanted it done. Moses was a, Moses was a classic example, my friend, of right idea, wrong time. Right idea, but not slowing down long enough to take into account the ringlets and the poles. Moses is a classic example. And, and friends, what we learn from Moses and what we learn from David is that it doesn't matter how sincere we are. They were both sincere. It doesn't matter how noble our motives are. They both had noble motives. The right thing done the wrong way, God will never bless. He just won't. Let me take a break here and say for a moment, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and maybe your attitude is, as is with so many people, I don't understand why we've got to be so rigid about this. I mean, a sincere Buddhist, a sincere Muslim, a sincere Jewish person, a sincere secular Washingtonian who's trying hard to do it right and trying hard to be a nice person and trying hard to be a good citizen. Why do we have to say they've got no chance of going to heaven? Why do we have to be that rigid about that? Seems like if they're sincere and they've got good motive, that ought to count for something. Well, may I point out to you, friends, David had a sincere motive. He had a noble goal. But you still got to do it God's way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to heaven. Nobody gets to heaven unless they get there by way of me. doesn't matter how sincere you are. doesn't matter how noble your goals are. There's a way to do it. And if you don't do it that way, it doesn't work. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ and you're figuring that your nobility of your, mob- of, of your motives and the sincerity of your heart is going to overcome what Jesus said, may I say to you, it's not going to. You're going to have to do it God's way. But let's get back to those of us who are Christians now. What does this mean for us? Well, I think it means for us there's a lesson here that we need to constantly remind ourselves that God cares not about just getting the job done. God cares about the way we get the job done. Small stuff matters to God. And God cares that we get the job done in light of the small stuff that matters to Him. God cares about small stuff like integrity in our business dealings. He just doesn't care, did you make the deal? He cares about, how did you make the deal? God cares about small stuff like sexual purity before marriage. I tell people in Frontline when I speak there all the time, if you love each other enough that you deserve the privileges of sexual relations, then you love each other enough to take on the commitment of marriage. And if you don't love each other enough to take on the commitment of marriage, then you don't love each other enough yet to have the privilege of sexual relations. This is how the way God says it's supposed to be done. And I'm warning you, if you do it any other way, you're going to be sorry. You're going to be sorry. God cares about small stuff, like telling the truth and being people of our word. God cares about small stuff, like returning good for evil and taking the high road and not going down and mud wrestling with people in our world, but taking the high road and trusting God to vindicate us. God cares about small stuff, like not rolling over people just to get what we want. God cares about small stuff, like being godly examples to our children. God cares about small stuff like standing up for Him in our school and in our workplace. God cares not just that we get it done. God cares that we get things done in such a way that we honor the small stuff that He cares about. And my observation is, after 18 years of being a pastor, is that one of the biggest mistakes that we as Christians make is that so often we're in such a hurry just to get it done, just like David was in a hurry, just like Moses was in a hurry, we're in such a hurry just to get it done for God that we fail to take the time to make sure 
how we get it done falls in line with all this small stuff God cares about. That's why the Bible tells us over and over and over, my friends, wait on the Lord. Sometimes you just got to wait on the Lord till things are in place. Psalm 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. In 28 years of being a Christian and walking with God, one thing I've learned, and I've learned it the hard way, is that with God, timing is everything. Timing is everything. Often we do have the right idea about what God wants to do with us. Just like Moses had the right idea. Just like David had the right idea. But we need to be willing to wait patiently, friend, until God in His marvelous timing clicks every little piece of small stuff in so we can do that thing without violating any of the will of God. And here's the marvelous truth, is that if we're willing to wait, and indeed we have discerned correctly this is what God wants us to do, God always works all those things so they do click in, and so that effortlessly we can do what God's called us to do, but you've got to wait sometimes for that. You've got to wait. See, friends, waiting on God means that we have the confidence that God not only knows what to do, but that God knows when to do it. And for us as Americans... This is about the hardest discipline there is, is waiting. You know, give me something to do. I'll do it. Give me something out to conquer. I'll conquer it. Give me something to get done. I'll get it done. I'm the go-to person. Give it to me. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Let me go. Let me go. And then God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Wait. What? Wait? I don't want to wait. That's un-American to wait. We don't wait for anything. We have one-hour picture developing. We have ten-minute oil changes. We have instant coffee, instant oatmeal. We have instant mashed potatoes. We have call waiting. We don't wait on anybody or anything. Busy signals are unacceptable in America. We don't wait. That, that, that's just downright be, not being a good American. But my friends, I've got to tell you something. God does not work on the instant system. He never has and He never will. God forces us to wait many times. Because in waiting, we have to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. In waiting, we have to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ over our life. In waiting, God forces us to acknowledge that we're willing to give up control and we're willing to do it God's way and not our way. And even if that means we have to wait in order to be able to do it God's way and not our way, we're willing to submit to the Lordship of Christ and wait. That's why God makes us wait sometimes. And that's good. You know, Brenda and I sold our house last December. We're all settled. We got our money in the bank. We've been looking for a new house for almost 11 months. You say, well, where are you on this right now, Lon? Well, we're waiting on the Lord. Uh, we have looked at oodles and oodles of houses. And um, i got to tell you, this is hard. It's hard waiting, you know. I mean, I go into every, every house we go into and I go, Brenda, please, please, can I write a contract on this? Please, I want to write a contract. It's been months, months, months. And she keeps saying, this isn't the house. I'm like, oh, shoot. You know, and so we've been through 11 months of, oh, shoot. And, and, but you know what, friends? I have pulled a Moses before. You know, right idea, wrong time. I've done this so many times. I want to tell you, God has taken me to the woodshed a number of times. And I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. And every time you pull a Moses, you live to regret it. Every time you pull a Moses, I mean, there is disaster everywhere. And picking up the pieces is ugly. And I've learned the hard way. Pulling a Moses is not a real smart way to live. You wait. You wait until God's ready to move. You wait. And sometimes I get so frustrated, I get to twitching all over. 
I mean, I do. And I need a cold shower sometimes. It gets so bad. And one of these, when I was in a mood like this about a month ago, my wife said to me, she said, look right here. Look me right in the eyes. Now, we do this to our children. Look me right in the eyes. But my wife does it to me. She said, look here. You look me right in the eyes. You looking? Yes, ma'am. Okay, right here. She said, I want to tell you something. She said, I want to tell you that when God gives us the house that he has for us, Lon Solomon, you're going to be glad you waited. It is a very frustrating experience to be married to a woman that's always right. I want you to know that. It makes life very difficult, friends, for me. And I know I have your sympathy, and that means a lot to me. It does. It does. It really it just it means a lot to me. But I know she's right. She's absolutely right. So I took a cold shower, and I feel better. You know, I feel okay now. But this is hard. And you know this. Some of you are in situations where God is asking you to wait, and you hate waiting. And you keep going, come on, God, please, can't we, can't we, can't we, can't we, can't we, can't we? And God keeps going, not yet. You're like, oh, shoot. But you know what, my friends? If I had any advice to give you, it would be this. Sweat the small stuff. Sweat ethics. And sweat integrity. And sweat honesty. And sweat personal holiness. And sweat sexual purity. And sweat treating people right. And sweat your personal reputation as a Christian. And be willing to wait on the Lord until you can do the right thing, the right way, at the right time. That's what God's looking to do. It's to bring you to the point where He clicks everything in and you can do the right thing. But in the right way, sweating all the little things that matter to God. And you can do it in the right time. My first pastor 25 years ago taught me a little poem. I've never forgotten it, never wrote it down, didn't have to. I've always remembered it. I'd like to close with it. Here it goes. It says this. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. God gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. is that a wonderful little poem? Let me say it again. God knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. God gives the very best to those who are willing to wait if God asks them to wait who are willing to wait and leave the choice to Him. And if you're in waiting mode, that's a wonderful mode to be in. I know it's not easy, but it's a wonderful mode to be in because you're acknowledging before God that He's Lord, not you. You're acknowledging before God that He's in control of the universe, not you. You're acknowledging before God that He's sovereign, not you. And you're acknowledging before God that you want His best bad enough that you're willing to wait however long it takes, till He's ready to do that for you. That's a wonderful place to be. Don't despise a place like that. Rejoice in a place like that. And remember, God always brings waiting to an end, and you'll never be sorry you waited for Him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as I said earlier, um, waiting is un-American. Unpatriotic. And our world system keeps screaming in our ear, just get it done, get it done. doesn't matter how you get it done, just get it done. God doesn't care about little stuff. But I thank you for reminding us today you do care about little stuff, like integrity and ethics and honesty and decency and respect for other people and courtesy and kindness. You do care about those things. 
And Father, my prayer is that You would help us to be spiritually smart enough to understand that so many times we get the right idea a long time before all the clickers fall into place so we can do it and respect all the small things You care about. Which means so many times we've got to wait. Even though we know what we've got to do, we've got to wait. And so, Lord, my prayer is, to give, is that You would give people here today the wisdom, the courage, the discipline, to be obedient to You and to wait. Help us not to live like good Americans. Help us to live like biblical Christians with a worldview that flows not out of Madison Avenue, but out of the Word of God. Change our life by what we've learned here today, I pray, Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.